Good morning. It's good to see everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors of the church here. Uh, thank you very much to Vinny and the other uh, musicians uh, for leading us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, I understand uh, the slide says John 19. We'll get there, but John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, as Pastor J.D. said, there should be one uh, somewhere nearby, uh, near one of, uh, underneath one of the seats nearby, uh, solid black colored Bible, John chapter 1. We've been in John's gospel account for several months now, and I just want to remind us of how this book begins. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the lights of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John makes it clear in this introduction. He's talking about the Word. He refers to the Word as a hymn. It becomes crystal clear that what he's talking about is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He says that Jesus was with God and was God in the beginning. He says that all things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. And this light, Jesus, shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What's interesting about that passage compared with the end of our passage in the second half of John chapter 19, is that when we get to the end of our passage at the end of John chapter 19, it is going to look like darkness has overcome the light of the world. It's going to look like that has happened. You see, at the end of our passage this morning, Jesus is going to be dead, and he's going to be alone in a tomb. A dark tomb. And so we might imagine, wait a second, looks like darkness has overcome the light. But John, you said at the very beginning of the book, no, 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 no. Darkness cannot and will not overwhelm the light. It will not overcome the lights. But it's going to look like it at the end of chapter 19. Now, I'm confident that most of you who are here, the vast majority of you, you who are here this morning, you know that John chapter 19 is not the end of the book of John. It is not the end of the story. I'm confident that most of you know that Jesus did not stay dead in the tomb. I'm confident that most of you know full well that Jesus arose on the third day, and today he sits in his resurrected body at the right hand of God the Father. I trust that most of you know that. So, because we know that, it is tempting to skip over the death of Jesus. It's tempting to say, yeah, yeah, he died, but he rose again, right? It's, it's easy to just skip over that part. No, no, no. 
We must not do that. We must not skip over Jesus' death and its significance in our lives. You see, John writes the details about Jesus' death that he writes for a very specific purpose. He's not just like chronicling whatever he thinks is interesting. He's doing it all for a purpose. And he tells us what that purpose is in John chapter 20. He says he writes these things that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in Jesus, we would have life in his name. That's why he writes what he writes. This is the purpose, the, John's purpose in everything that he has recorded for us in his gospel. Here is my proposition for you this morning from our passage this morning. My proposition for you, believe that Jesus died for you according to God's perfect plan. Believe that Jesus died for you according to God's perfect plan. Let us read together this morning this powerful passage of God's Word. John chapter 19, starting uh, the second half of verse 16. John 19, the second half of verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices. And as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see you. Help each one who is hearing these words read and hearing this sermon preached. Help each one hear about you and see you for who you are and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would, they would have life in your name. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Again, it is my goal this morning that you would believe that Jesus died for you according to God's perfect plan. There's going to be two big truths for us today, two big truths from this passage that will lead us to this reality and this proposition that you would realize and that you would believe that God died for you, that Jesus died for you according to God's perfect plan. The first truth is this. We see this in uh, verses 16 through 22, verses 16 through 22, the first truth. Jesus was crucified like a common criminal so you don't have to. Jesus was crucified like a common criminal, so you don't have to. So Jesus, the promised, eternal King of the Jews, was crucified like a common criminal. Jesus, the perfect Son of Man, was crucified like a common criminal. Notice how this happens, starting back at the beginning of our passage, says that they went out, those who were going to crucify Jesus and Jesus, they went out. Jesus carried his own cross. This is typical of criminals facing persecution. 
They took him to a common place of crucifixion. The place is called the place of the skull, the place where people go to die. They crucified him alongside in the midst of two others. You'll notice in verse 18, verse 18, John says really the same thing three different ways. He's trying to draw our attention to something. He says Jesus was crucified with two others. He says Jesus is crucified with one on either side of him. He says that Jesus is crucified between these two others. John also tells us in verse 20 that this place of the skull is near the city. It's near the city. You see, a lot of times when we see artists' interpretation of the three crosses, or maybe there's some church properties that'll have three crosses. Sometimes you'll be driving down the interstate, right? And there's three crosses like physically on the side of the interstate. I can think of a few places specifically where this is. I I trust you've seen this as well. And a lot of times what happens is they're like far away from the interstate or they're far away from the church building. And typically they're they're just really away from everything else. And, And usually the center cross is like bigger and higher than the other two crosses. But one thing we must understand is that Roman crucifixion happened close to the people. Crucifixions were done in public places. They were done in places where people would see the agony of those being crucified up close and personal. They would see it. Crucifixion, you see, was not only meant to punish criminals... It was also meant to discourage anyone else from thinking of committing that crime. And John wants to be clear, Jesus is crucified right in the midst of all that. Jesus is crucified right in the middle of it. He's right there with the other criminals. He's in the place where criminals go to die. He's right there in the city where many Jews, he says, saw it. They saw exactly what happened. Another thing that the Romans would do when they crucified someone is they'd put a placard on the cross. They'd put an inscription on the cross, right? And what was on that inscription was the crime that the person had committed. So you'd have a person hanging there, dying, murder. Someone hanging there, dying, insurrection, right? The crime that they had committed that led to the crucifixion. So it was to punish the guilty and it was to warn those who would ever think about doing such a thing. On Jesus' cross, Pilate put a sign that simply read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The chief priests of the Jews hated this inscription. They hated it. They had delivered Jesus to Pilate to be crucified because Jesus was claiming to be God. Jesus was claiming to have power. Jesus was claiming to be the promised son of David who would rule on the throne of David forever. Jesus claimed to be those things, but the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus' claims. And they used an angry mob to convince Pilate to crucify him. What's interesting is what Pilate says, Pilate in true Pilate fashion, if you read all the gospel accounts and just kind of get a sense of what Pilate's thinking, 
in, in true Pilate fashion, he brushes it all off. He says, what I've written, I've written. Let me be clear. Jesus was and Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the promised descendant of David who will rule and reign on David's throne forever. Pilate's sign, while likely amusing to Pilate as a jab at the Jewish leaders, was precisely true. Precisely true. And Jesus, this King of the Jews, as promised and foretold in all of the Old Testament scriptures, he was crucified as a common criminal. He was not a criminal. He was the perfect son of God. He was the spotless lamb of God. He knew no sin, the Apostle Paul writes. And yet he was crucified like he was a common criminal. You might ask, why? You should be asking, why? Why, why was this perfect man, the man that even Pilate, this Roman governor, could not find any faults in him, why was Jesus crucified like he was a common criminal? Why? Quite simply, so that you don't have to, and so that you might have life in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, you are a common criminal. Jesus wasn't, you are. Yes, I know that the world is trying to tell you over and over again in a myriad of ways that you're awesome just how you are. I get that. I get that the world is screaming that. You're going to leave here, and if you turn on any media, you look at your phone, you scroll social media, you turn on a TV commercial or a radio commercial, anywhere you look, you turn on the radio, anywhere you look, the world is trying to tell you, look, you're, you are awesome just how you are. You don't need to change anything. One of these days, the world is going to figure out just how awesome you are. You just need to keep doing you. You just need to keep doing all the awesome things that you do. You don't need to change at all. Bruno Mars beautifully sings, you're amazing just the way you are. The whole song is called just the way you are. I apologize for those of you that I just gave you an earworm, and you're going to be thinking that all day. I apologize, but I don't, because you're going to realize, wait, that's not true. Bruno is lying to me. Not that Bruno, the other Bruno. Sorry. We don't talk about the other one. <laughs> Queen Elsa, while we're on children's movies, Queen Elsa tells us what? She says, there's no rights. There's no wrong. There's no rules for me. I'm telling you, the world is screaming this at you. You're perfect. You're fine. Just how you are. You just keep doing what you're doing, and you're going to be great. Just ignore any thoughts that you have that are telling you that, that you've done something wrong. Just ignore that. There's nothing wrong anymore. We're abolishing anything that is classified as wrong, except, of course, classifying things as wrong. You ever think about that? It's a self-defeating argument. When, everybody, when anybody ever tells you, anybody tells you, hey, 
There's no such thing as right and wrong. Say, that's a self-defeating argument. I'll let you stew on that for a minute. But that argument defeats itself. If it's true, then it's not true. If it's not true, then it's true. Anyway. Here's the reality, though. Despite all the songs, despite all of it, deep down you know that it's not true, that you've not done anything wrong. No matter how good the songs, no matter how good looking the celebrity, no matter how often you hear it, you know that you have done wrong. You know that you have done things that if there is a God who is as good and as just and as holy and as righteous as the Bible says that he is, you know that you have done things that if he is who he says that he is, that you should die. You should die an eternal death. If God is that good and God knows everything I've ever done and he saw that thing that I did last week, he saw that thing that I did 10 years ago, he saw all of it, he saw the thing that I thought that nobody else saw, if God is really that big and that powerful, he should absolutely destroy me. And deep down, you know it. You know that you should die. You know that you should be arrested, not Jesus. Jesus shouldn't have been arrested. You should have been arrested. You should have gone through a trial. Jesus' trial was a fake, contrived trial where mob rule had to win the day. But if in your trial, all they would have to do is put some pictures up or put some facts up and be like, yep, I'm guilty. You should have been arrested. You should have been tried. You should have been beaten. Jesus should not have been beaten. He was perfect. He never did anything wrong. You should have been beaten. I should have been beaten. You should have been stripped naked and hung on a cross for everyone to see. I want you to hear the good news, though. Something the world doesn't get. The good news is not just that you're guilty. The good news is that Jesus died like a criminal so that you don't have to. Jesus lived a perfect life, so he did not die for his sins. He died for the sins of everyone who would put their faith and their trust in him. That's whose sins he died for. Everyone who would place their faith and their trust in him. Jesus died the death that you deserve so that you can have life In his name. My prayer for you is that today would be the day that you stop your life that is marching towards eternal death. Rightful eternal death. And turn and trust in Jesus' death to count for you. And to walk into new life, eternal life that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. That's my prayer for you today. That that would happen for you today. That you would say, this life, I'm guilty, and it is going towards eternal death. I'm going to turn from that, and I'm going to trust that Jesus' death counts for me, and that I might find life, eternal life, in his name. I pray that that would happen for you today. Now, I imagine that there are some thinkers in this room. There are some who are like, all right. I see what's going on here. All right, Jesus, he's supposed to be the son of God, all right? But he's crucified as a common criminal. He's 
unjustly convicted to death. So you're thinking, all right, I see how this works, right? Like something went wrong, right? Something, the plan kind of went off the rails at some point. So like Jesus is dead. And so God is like up in heaven. God, the father's up in heaven. Like, oh man, they just killed Jesus. This plan is, what am I going to do? Oh gosh, what am I going to do? Ah, I got it. I'll just raise him from the dead. I'm God. I can do that. I'll just raise him from the dead. Everything's going to be okay. Okay, so like if we're not careful, we start to think that this is like a plan B, right? That that God just was like, oh, we'll just resurrect him. Then it'll all be good. That's not at all what happens. You see, it is crystal clear in this passage. And it is the witness of every page of scripture that God is never in panic mode. God is never in the mode of like, man, how am I going to fix this? That never happens with God. I know it happens with us all the time, right? We're, we are always in panic mode. We're like, oh, no, that didn't work out how it's was, how was supposed to, and we're trying to fix it. We're always, we are always in the mode of like, man, I messed this up. How do I fix it? Or man, somebody else messed this up. How am I going to fix it? We're always in that mode. God is never in that mode. Never. He never has been. He never will be. God is never scrambling to react to the affairs of this world and try to turn them into something good. God is always and forever in perfect, sovereign control of his universe. Even the horrific death of his own son. It's a powerful truth. Peter says it crystal clear in Acts chapter 2. He says it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So the second big truth for us this morning is this. It's in verses 23 through 42. Verses 23 through 42. Jesus' death happened according to God's perfect plan. Jesus' death happened according to God's perfect plan. Jesus' death and burial happened exactly, exactly as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the eternal three-in-one Godhead, how he planned it from before the foundation of the earth. That's exactly how it happened. Notice the things that happen as Jesus is crucified, all of which show that God is in complete control. Now, in this passage, verses 23 through 42, a pretty lengthy section of Scripture. Because it's a lengthy section of Scripture on something as important as the death of Jesus, I'm going to guess that there's about 10,000 things happening in this passage that show that this is happening according to the plan that God set before the foundation of the world, right? About 10,000. I've got four that I think are really clear from the text, four. There's a lot more. We're going to go with four that are really clear from the text. The first one, verses 23 and 24, the soldiers who crucified Jesus, they strip him naked as was the custom of those who were crucified. 
They divide up his clothing. They notice that the tunic is woven. It's from head to toe. It's one piece, and so they're not going to tear that up into fours. Instead, what they're going to do is they're going to gamble for that last piece of clothing. Now, what are the soldiers doing? They're just doing what soldiers do. They're just getting their, what they can. They're getting their spoils of their job, and they are gambling, and they're just doing what soldiers do. But John tells us that they're actually serving a bigger plot. They have no clue that they're serving a bigger plot. They're just doing what soldiers do. But John tells us, he says, what is happening, and they're gambling for Jesus' clothes, it actually happened to fulfill the Scripture. And then he quotes Psalm 22, the passage we read earlier in our service. This passage, Psalm 22, was written by King King of the Jews, and it was written about a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. A thousand years. You might not realize this, but you actually really struggle to think about a thousand years. It's a lot of time. It's like a really long time. Just to give you one marker, think about America and like the entire history of America. Like from the Declaration of Independence to today, we're going to celebrate, I believe, 246 years this July 4th. 246 years. That's all of the history of America from the Declaration of Independence to now. Psalm 22 to Jesus' crucifixion is a thousand years. A thousand years says, look, they're going to gamble over his garments a thousand years before they do it. It's amazing. Secondly, uh, verses 25 through 27, Jesus saw his mother and John. John, the guy that wrote our gospel account that we've been studying, he refers to himself in the third person. A lot of times he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Jesus is hanging on the cross and he sees the apostle John and he sees his mother standing there. His mother is most likely a widow at this point. And he looks at his mother and he says, behold your son. And he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And then John tells us what he did. He took Mary, Jesus' mother, to go and live with him. He's going to care for Mary. Uh, I'm sure it's a bit of a symbiotic relationship that uh, Mary was probably motherly towards John. John is very young. He's probably a teenager for most of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so I'm sure Mary was motherly towards John, and John was able to care for Mary as his mother, uh, most likely widowed at this point. What we see here is that Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, dying, he has his full mental capacity. He has all his mental capabilities. So he's able to think through this stuff. He is also showing his immense compassion and care for others right up until the final moment of his life. He is completely in control. Third, Jesus said, I thirst. And then he also, in that same section there, he says, it is finished. 
and he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. So he says he thirsts, which is again an allusion to Psalm 22, most likely. Psalm 22, there's a pretty good section we read that talks about how drained he is and how tired he is and how his tongue is like stuck to the roof of his mouth. And Jesus is saying, I thirst. We also see that he declares it's finished. He bows his head in verse 30. He gives up his spirit. Jesus is completely in control. It's exactly what he said back in John chapter 10. He said, he gives up his life. No one takes it from him. He gives it up of his own accord. Jesus is completely in control. Fourth, in verse 31, soldiers come to break the legs of the criminals on the cross. They're doing so at the request of the Jews. This is, it's getting ready to be the Sabbath of Holy Week. It's getting ready to be the Sabbath of Passover week. And so they, they don't want dead uh, criminals hanging on crosses as they're preparing to celebrate uh, the Sabbath and continuing uh, the last day of the Passover feast. And so they want the legs broken so that they go ahead and die because uh, the legs are how they stay awake typically, and so they break the legs. But then they get to Jesus, and he's already dead. And so they don't break his legs. And they do something else just to make sure he's dead, because if you're a Roman soldier that's charged with crucifying somebody, you better not mess it up. You better make sure he's dead. And so what they do is, just to make sure they didn't mess up, just to make sure he's dead, they take a spear and they pierce it into his side. And water and blood come out. Again, the soldiers are just doing what soldiers do. They're just carrying out their tasks. But we might ask, why, John? Why, why did all this happen? Why did they not break his legs, but they broke the other two legs? Why did they pierce him in the side with, with a spear? Like, why are they doing this? Why, John? Why did all this happen? In verse 36, John tells us, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Then he quotes a sentence that appears in two books of the Bible, the books of Exodus and Numbers. These books are written about 1,500 years before Jesus' death. He also quotes the prophet Zechariah, which is written about 500 years before Jesus' death. At this point, John has now quoted Moses, David, and the prophet Zechariah, all pointing to different details of Jesus' death 500, 1,000, and 1,500 years before it ever happened. Jesus, the Godhead, is in complete control. Complete control. Everything happened exactly as he had planned. We started this morning where John began the book. The big idea that Jesus is the Word of God, He was with God and He was God, that through Jesus all things were made that were made, and in Jesus was life, and that darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus. But at the conclusion of our passage, Jesus is in a dark tomb. He's wrapped in linen cloths. And about 75 pounds of spices. He's laid in a tomb. 
And it looks like perhaps darkness has won. But instead, what we've seen is that everything has happened exactly as God intended it to happen. You may say, why? Why why the death of Jesus? Why all the prophecies about how he would die? Why, Why does Jesus show the compassion that he shows to his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John? Why does all that happen how it happened? Why the timing of it all? What's, what's the point of all of it? Why are you telling it like this, John? He says it crystal clear in verse 35. Again, he, he, he always writes of himself in the third person. He says this, He who saw it himself has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? Why are you telling us this, John? That you may also believe. That's why John writes it, that you would believe. He's been telling us the whole book. I'm telling you this so that you would believe. There's people believing, there's people not believing. I'm writing this so that you would be one of those who would believe. You see, you deserve the death that Jesus died. You are a common criminal amidst all the other common criminals. One of two things will be true of you when this life is over. One of two things. We always want to create like this little third category doesn't exist. One of these two things will be true of you when you leave this earth. Either Jesus' death will count for you and you will walk into eternal life or your death will count for you and you will walk into eternal death. Those are the only two options. Jesus' death counts for you. You walk into eternal life. Or your death will count for you. And you will walk into eternal death. John wrote this account the way that he did. I'm preaching this sermon the way that I'm preaching it. For one reason. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. Here's how this works. The Bible's pretty clear about the proper, proper response to these things. You might be like, all right, what do I do? How how's this work? Two things. Number one, confess your sins before God. Confess your sins before God and commit to turn from them. We use a fancy word for turn around in Christian language. It's called repent, right? That's like I was going this way and I repent. I turn and I start going a different way. So part of repentance is confessing that I'm walking the wrong way, right? Repent of your sins. Confess your sins before God. Commit to turn from them, to repent from them. So confess your sins. What's that mean? That you agree with God that you have done wrong. You, you disagree with culture that you haven't done anything wrong. You agree with God that you have done wrong and that you deserve death. You agree with God that you have sinned against a holy, righteous, just God. You have sinned against Him. And you deserve eternal death. That's step one. Confess your sins. Confess that you've done wrong. Confess that you deserve death. 
Second step, believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve for your sin. Believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve for your sin. You have to believe that Jesus' death matters. He's not just some itinerant rabbi who died 2,000 years ago, and that's really meaningless in your life today. You have to believe that that death counts for you. I deserve death, but I don't want eternal death. I don't want eternal separation from God. I want Jesus' death to count for me so that I can have life in his name, and I can have eternal life and eternal life with God and with all the people of God, that he will be our God and we will be his people. So two things, confess, repent of your sins, believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve. He did it all according to God's perfect plan. I'd like to conclude our time this morning by praying for you. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who are here listening to these truths from your word. Lord, my prayer is that each one who is here would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing would have life in his name. Lord, I also know that some will be hesitant to do so. I know that as soon as we stop this moment and move on to the singing and the rest of our service, they will be tempted to move on with life. They'll be tempted to move on to the next thing. So Lord, I pray that you would capture their hearts, capture their minds now. Plant within them a seed of commitment. Help them even now as we pray to confess their sins to you and believe that Jesus Christ died the death that they deserve. Help them to know that they have an advocate with you, that they can speak to you, God, only because of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be in this moment to do work with you. For those who need to confess their sins and trust in you for the first time, I pray that you would help them to do so now. That you would give them courage to talk to someone about it today. Lord, I pray for those who already know you, but who have lived this week as though they do not know you. I pray that you would help each of us to repent of our sins and trust anew in you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.